Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using Nidig, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory governance and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out Nidig as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. Hey guys, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. I am honored and privileged again today to be sitting down with Mr. Jeffrey Miller. Um, people have really enjoyed our episodes so far. Uh, so thank you for that. You brought a lot of unique insights. People went crazy for the money is liquid fitness line. So you might go, might go down in history for that one. <laughs> it's great uh, to be back. I'm looking forward to wherever the conversation today leads us. Yeah. So we we're just talking a little bit offline, which way we should take this. And I think this idea of the mating market ultimately being the most important market in the world. And it seems like a lot of the other markets for goods and services sort of, you know, directly or indirectly serve that market. Ultimately, (laughs) I'm just thinking of guys buying sports cars or, you know, girls buying pretty dresses and, you know, you could go on ad infinitum, but a lot of our behavior is geared towards this Darwinian impulse to reproduce. Um, so clearly this is a broad topic. Maybe we could start out with something a little bit playful, but possibly really useful and just some, maybe some general dating advice and we'll focus on the young guys because, um, nine out of 10 of you listening to this are young guys, according to my audience demographics. So if you're not a young guy and this dating advice is not for you, we apologize, but I think it might be useful to you nonetheless. Um, So how should young guys think about dating uh, specifically as it relates to money and careers? I think lesson number one is they should think about it, like take it seriously as something that you you can learn about and you can level up and you can plan and you can have goals and you're allowed to be smart about it. And there's almost a taboo against being strategic and tactical and smart about your dating life. Mm. So you meet a lot of young men who are really on the ball about their their education and their careers and their um, finances and investments and general life hacks and self-control and monitoring their physical health. And then when it comes to date, the dating domain, they're either 
naive and fatalistic. Mm. And it's like, if I meet the right person, I meet mm. them. There's someone out there for me. I hope they show up. Or they go the opposite extreme and they become kind of like, um, they soak up the worst parts of like pickup artist culture and become kind of, try to become high functioning sociopaths. Mm. Mm. And I think there's a happy middle ground. Um, Tucker Max and I wrote a whole book about this topic called Mate that came out in 2015. Not enough people have read it. And we put a lot of advice in there for young single straight guys that's based on evolutionary psychology and biological insights and anthropology and sex research and, and so forth. And, you know, I've learned some stuff since then that might also be kind of helpful updates. But I think long story short, you know, if you're a young single straight guy, um, the number one problem that young men reported, like in our Mating Grounds podcast, we did 200 episodes of this podcast back in 2014 to 2016. Most guys had no idea what young women actually wanted in young men. They had a completely delusional mm -hmm. mental model of female mate choice. And second, problems with confidence, not knowing mm -hmm. what do I offer? What are my distinctive qualities and traits? Why mm -hmm. would anyone date me? What do I bring to the table? So I think understanding female choice and understanding your own value as a man, and they're kind of two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. So if you don't understand what women are looking for, it's very hard to be confident that you have it. And if you develop you know, the wrong traits are like you overinvest in certain things and underinvest in other things, um, then you won't match the female mate choice criteria and you mm -hmm. won't actually be as valuable and desirable as you think you should be. Interesting. Um, so you touched on a number of things I'd love to unpack. Maybe we'll start with this one. So this is potentially a really broad question. So we'll try to keep it through the scope of our young single guys, I guess, in relation to money and careers, but feel free to take it any direction you want. But what do women want? Actually, what are the criteria by which they're evaluating the young single guys for potential uh, to be potential mates, or I guess, marriage or long-term relationship? Generally, what you, what you see across species for hundreds of millions of years is females choosing males for general fitness. What do we mean by that? That's not just physical fitness. It's not just how much can you bench press or can you win a CrossFit competition. It's how well does your whole body and brain and behavioral repertoire work? How mm. competent are you? Can you do shit? Can you get things done? Mm. Can you handle your life? And I think women, you know, you can say they're attracted to dominance, they're attracted to the alpha. But really, highly dominant alpha, um, popular guys kind of are recognized for that because they're competent, mm. because they can make things happen, because, you know, they're popular, because they can, they can make friends and they're interesting to people and they're considered valuable. And they're dominant because they have the, um, you know, physical size and strength and assertiveness and confidence to um, 
handle themselves and, and not to take shit from people. Mm. And so I think general competence is something that women respond to just very, very strongly. And when guys are giving signals of incompetence, like impatience, oh, I can't do that. I have no idea how to you know, fix this. Um, one of the big points we make in MATE is that a lot of guys over-specialize in particular domains of competence, and they don't have a broad enough repertoire. Mm-hmm. So, for example, a guy might spend you know, four years as an undergrad majoring in whatever, economics or, God forbid, philosophy or you know, whatever <laughs> he's doing. And they barely spend maybe, so that's thousands of hours learning about some topic. And they underinvest in almost everything else. Like they haven't even spent 10 or 20 hours learning how a car works or how to fix it mm-hmm. or how to buy a decent used car. They can't sing. They can't dance. They don't understand um, uh, art. They mm-hmm. don't have any conversation topics that they've um, developed. They've One thing Tucker kept emphasizing was take some improv comedy classes. Mm. You can level up your sense of humor pretty mm. quickly, actually. And there's, there's like a limited number of um, tricks that can make you significantly funnier than most guys that aren't that hard to learn. <laughs> and good sense of humor is one of the most highly desired traits um, in both sexes, by both sexes. And I've done uh, a little bit of research on humor. Uh, one of my grad students interviewed like 30 stand-up comedians about their lives and their strategies for comedy and so forth. And so I think it can be really helpful for, for young men to kind of like, imagine you're a young woman looking for a boyfriend. Watch a bunch of romantic comedies that depict the kind of typical ideal boyfriend that young women get excited about. Make an objective list of what skills do those boyfriends have? Which of them do I share? Which of them do mm. I, am I not able to do yet? You know, do I dress well? Do I, can I groom myself? Am mm. I in shape? Um, do I have good general world knowledge about stuff? Mm. Do I know how to do the basic, you know, how to make friends and influence people conversation styles? Have I leveled up my sense of humor? And I think doing that kind of objective inventory from a woman's point of view about where, where are you at, what, what shape does your life have, um, can be really helpful. It, it can be kind of daunting and depressing at first to do that when, if you think, ah, uh, so far to go. But the upside is many of these skills are so easy to level up so quickly if you know what what to work on well a lot of great points there and it seems like like in any other market it's competitive right so you have to train you need to hone your skills you need to sharpen yourself um and i like that because you we talked earlier in the series how in a more primitive culture the hunter like a competent hunter hunter was also basically moral 
right? He was providing a service that the group needed to go out and obtain mead. So it's almost like this, there's a, um, and maybe this gets back to virtue and virtue signaling. It, there's a different set of attributes in the modern age that we're looking for, right? There's just a different environment to be fit to. So um, it sounds like women are kind of looking for that. Like, can't, can a man, I guess if you had to sum it up, can a man get shit done, right? Can he handle his life? That totally makes sense. What you were somewhat describing resonated with me, sounded like almost like a Renaissance man. Like you want a guy that he's athletic, but he's also good at work and he can paint and do poetry and sing all these different things. So a generalist, you might say, is that specific to our, our current cultural zeitgeist because I, i've read maybe this was you as well that a generalist will outcompete a specialist in times of great change and clearly the world is in you know exponential speed of change right now so does that have something to do with the, this mate selection criteria yeah totally i think you know originally if you think about ancestral tribal life most people were relatively generalists about what their skill set was. Like a, a decent, high-functioning guy would need to be able to hunt and engage in warfare and handle competition within the tribe and sort of maintain dominance and status and prestige in relation to other guys. And he'd have to be a good dad and parent mm. and a good community member. But nowadays, with a highly specialized market economy and division of labor, young men are kind of pulled in one direction of like, if you specialize, you will get huge rewards. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to pick, are you going to go to law school or med school or MBA or start a company right. or what? You can't do them all, right? So the market rewards often extreme specialization. Right, right. And even at, as you say, like in times of rapid change, over-specialization leaves you extremely vulnerable to, mm. you know, your job being automated out of existence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas the mating market, think about the fact, you know, if you're spending your life with someone, if you're living together for multiple decades and maybe raising kids together, the range of stuff you're going to have to do with them and the number of domains you'll have to coordinate with them effectively in, you know, it will include financial management, running a household, doing real estate deals, raising kids together, managing the kids' relationships with their you know, friends, managing your adult social life and your dinner parties and your professional networking, um, managing your, your, your finances and not just your career growth, but your partner's career growth. Mm. And so the generalist gets rewarded in long-term relationships and marriages. And I think smart young men and women kind of anticipate that and they're kind of instinctively looking for a mate who is that kind of all-purpose, omni-competent generalist. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's very, very attractive. <clears throat> and I think another problem is people often get kind of overly identified with their distinctive personality traits. So for example, I'm naturally kind of an introvert when it comes to like 
if there's a big group, if there's a big party, I don't really enjoy talking to people. Put me up on a stage, I'm happy to talk to 5,000 people. Mm. Um, but what you're looking for in a mate is someone who can be introverted when that's appropriate, like head down, focus on work, you know, learn things, be comfortable with your own company, but who can switch into extrovert mode mm. if you're you know, going to a party as a couple mm. or you're doing professional networking. Likewise, you want somebody who's, let's say, um, highly agreeable and kind in certain conditions, but who's extremely assertive or even aggressive if there's a threat. Mm -hmm. And you want them to be able to switch back and forth. We call that the tender defender. You can be tender like 90% of the time, but you can be a fierce defender when um, the shit hits the fan. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important for young men not to kind of overly identify with, oh, I'm an introvert. I, can, mm -hmm. I could never be good at parties. Or, um, you know, I'm a conservative. I could never deal with new ideas if I met some woman who's more like open or liberal than me on some dimension. Right. That's interesting. So, I mean, the environment is constantly changing so the more dynamic you are and can adjust your fitness to the changing environment, that's valued as well. Yeah. Um, and that makes a lot of sense, actually. And two, if you assign yourself, I, one of the things I, I don't know where I heard this, but you are what you tell yourself you are in a way. You almost have to, you know, visualize the role you want to inhabit before you can actually do it. So if you tell yourself a limiting story or give yourself a limiting label or narrative, I am an introvert or I am this, you may not actually be able to realize your full potential because you may be limiting yourself just by virtue of, uh, of that label. That's interesting. I want to tap into this a little more closely. Humor. You mentioned you did some work on humor. What is humor it's so interesting how a joke seems to have this element of surprise but this element of truth to it but it's you know it has an element of timing you know if you tell a joke kind of out of sequence it doesn't quite work so it's this very finely tuned verbal instrument uh but i've always been curious about the nature of humor like it's very hard to, you know when you try to describe a joke it doesn't work it's like what What's going on with humor and why? And then why is it so, you mentioned it's desired by both sexes. What is the underlying evolutionary thought behind that? Yeah, a lot of the work I did on this was with um, my former PhD student, Gil Greengross, who's now a um, professor in, in Wales, in Britain, actually. And he and I did a bunch of empirical research on um, if you can kind of semi-objectively measure a sense of humor, like you give people tasks and they kind of come up with jokes and then other people rate how good are their, their jokes, basically. And then you measure a bunch of things like their general intelligence and the personality traits. You can ask what predicts sense of humor in terms of producing humor. And that when we say people are attracted to a good sense of humor, we're really talking about producing humor. Mm. One crucial thing is it's not just about memorizing jokes. It can be quite useful to memorize jokes from joke books, mm. but it's really 
online reactive wit, mm. like in response to a situation where there's you, you know, maybe there's a woman, there's a surrounding context. Can you make up something funny and interesting to say about that? Um, philosopher Dan Dennett had a kind of interesting theory about humor based on uh, the emotion of, of mirth. Mirth is kind of a pretentious technical term for the feeling of when you find something amusing. Mm. So it's kind of a distinctive emotion. Mirth can be expressed in laughter, but it doesn't have to be. And you can laugh without actually feeling mirth. But he talks about it in a very cognitive way. Like a joke is basically setting up a mental model of a situation in the hearer's head and then giving some twist where the listener realizes, oh, my mental model of the situation was slightly wrong. Mm. And now it's snapped into a different focus that reframes it. And Dan Dennett argues the emotion of mirth is almost like the brain's signal to itself that says, ha, you got fooled. You need to debug the mental models that you were using and kind of update them. Mm. So it's almost... Um, Humor is like an error correction system, kind of a learning system where Interesting. you're kind of giving feedback to your own brain. And mirth is associated with kind of a gratitude where if someone pokes at your mental models and kind of challenges them, um, you feel a kind of gratitude as if like they're a mentor or a teacher. Mm. And so I think this is one reason why people are so... Um, attracted to to comedians, um, that it's almost like you go to a stand-up comedy show and you think you're going for the laughter, but really your brain craves this kind of like almost adversarial deep learning hmm. that's going on in relation to the to the comedian. So I think there's this amazing depth to the human capacity for humor that that we kind of take for granted, but you know, a great comedian is, is basically just a brilliant intuitive psychologist who understands how to set up mental scenarios in people and then tweak them <laughs> in a sort of creative, surprising, but, but, you know, hopefully benign, non-threatening kind of way. That's amazing. So there's a real, evolutionary utility to humor then because what this calls to mind for me is the frame problem whereas like most of our revelations are we have the wrong framing of the problem which could be the wrong mental model of the, of the way we're looking at it um have you ever seen the nine dot problem visually done yeah so i think if anyone is listening just check that out i'm sure you can just google it but it's a great uh, exemplification of the frame problem where your brain just is stuck within this box and the the answer to the puzzle is very simple, but it's hard to see. Um, and so maybe humor is in a way training our neuroplasticity. It's kind of giving you this um, benign challenge, but that could improve your adaptivity that could be actually useful in a real situation at some point. Yeah, and also, 
you know, once you find a mate and you're in a relationship, oh my God, humor is so important in kind of being able to raise issues gently right. yeah. without provoking defensiveness or reactions. It's right. so important in resolving arguments. You know, my wife Diane and I overthink this so much and we talk <laughs> a lot about the importance of sort of benign teasing mm -hmm. of each other so that you can kind of give slightly critical feedback in a way that doesn't raise the other person's hackles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, almost every humorless marriage is a bad marriage. Right. So I think in a sense, what people are looking for when they're, they're selecting for a sense of humor, it's not just entertain me on the third date. Mm -hmm. It's also show me that you have the kind of, um, social psychology and the theory of mind and the understanding of other people that will be necessary once we get into kind of higher stakes, you know, marital arguments like disagreements mm. about money or where to move or how many kids to have or whatever, man, if you don't have a sense of humor about that stuff, um, divorce court is, is mm. looming on the horizon. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's the teasing. I mean, it seems to be so important in every relationship, you know, romantic relationship. But I think even in my friendships, when I hang out with my guy friends, 90% of all the words exchanged between us are just making fun of each other. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's so funny. That And that's yeah. interesting that you can improve it with training. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. you know, male friendships are a great place to test and level up a lot of these skills. Um, I think women can often kind of tell which guys don't spend enough time with male friends and don't have that experience mm. of kind of good-natured ribbing and mutual mockery and, and self-deprecating mockery and all that. Mm. Because the guys who don't have that experience end up having very fragile egos. Right. And if, you know, if, an, if a woman gives them any kind of critical feedback they'll just fold mm. and and not take it well so i think uh guys can use their friendships partly as kind of training camps to level up their 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 mate value and their kind of romantic skills mm. um but also um friendships have this value in their own right and we do friend choice and many of the same criteria that we use in mate choice also apply in, even in same-sex friend choice, even if you're not gay, mm. right? The attractiveness of intelligence and competence and sense mm. of humor and providing mutual value to each other. Um, you know, I've had some really long-term uh, male friendships in academia. You usually end up publishing with your friends, so it's mm. never just friends. Um, but those are really valuable in their own right. And... I think for a lot of young men, um, they're so focused on finding a mate that they neglect their friendships. Mm. And once they find a mate, especially, they neglect the friendships. Right. And that's very short-sighted because your friends are going to be your, your kind of safety net and your, your advisors if things go wrong in the relationship. Right. That's very important. Very important point. I think a lot of people fall into that trap. Um, yeah, it's almost uh, 
almost a cliche actually when people get a certain girlfriend they just drop off the face of the earth you know at least, at least in circles of friends that i've seen throughout my life um and that i think that's a really important point too that most people think oh they're funny or they're not funny but you can actually like every other marketable skill there's something you can do about it so maybe that's a good good starting point for dating training guys go do the what you said impromptu uh comedy class right yeah, almost every major city has improv comedy classes. And yeah. you can just go and you basically learn how to be silly and spontaneous and, you know, take some fictional scenario that somebody, you know, throws out there and then you kind of have to roll with it and you go, yes, right. and, and let's exaggerate it and take it somewhere yeah. silly and... Um, I think that's great training. I think watching really good stand-up comedians and thinking about what are the dozens of other ways they could have told that joke that would have worked not as well. Because mm. one thing we, you know, we learn in, in interviewing these uh, 30 or so stand-up comedians for the study with Gil, Gil Greengross that we did is they're just constantly polishing the material, mm -hmm. the exact wording, the timing, um, the gestures, the faces that they make. And every joke has sort of like an optimal way that you can tell it and a whole bunch of ways you could tell it that would just fail. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And once you develop the intuitions about, yeah, what's the best way I could do this? Like, It doesn't have to be perfect, but if you're kind of um, aware of the principles of, how do you set it up? How do you tell the story in a way that is coherent to the listener? Mm -hmm. um, how do you do strategic pauses so you kind of let the listener build up their impression of what's happening and get the anticipation? Most people will run through a joke way too fast without enough pauses, without enough pacing. Mm. So stuff like that really benefits from practice, I think. That's interesting. So the, it sounds like a good time to, to go and do an improv comedy class for entertainment purposes and for training as well. And calls to mind just this general, maybe musicality, if that's even a word of being, where you're kind of learning about pauses and stops and rhythms and a cadence to how you're saying or telling a joke. I mean, all these things matter, but they, that, that same, pattern making carries over to other areas like conversation or even, you know, sexual engagement, like all these things kind of have their, their flow. Um, it's super interesting. Never thought about that. Let me shift back to something else you mentioned earlier was confidence. This is a huge topic. I think particularly for guys, I mean, I I don't know. I grew up in Tennessee, which is the more traditional South where men tend to approach women almost exclusively. Like it's almost unheard of. And maybe things are changing now. I haven't been there in a few years, but it, when I was in college, like the guy always approached the girl. I know that's different in other cultures now and it's changing, but that requires kind of for a young man, especially a large degree of confidence and boldness. And you have to, you know, approach a woman with maybe 
slight butterflies in your chest and you need to have something interesting to say and be composed and competent, all these things. So is there a similar way to train or sharpen confidence as there is humor or what are the, what are the key elements or key advice you'd have for, for young men in relation to confidence? Confidence is really tricky because it's very hard for a male brain to delude itself into feeling confident when it knows it's, it's faking it, mm. right? Fake it till you make it is like a common saying, but it doesn't actually work that well. Mm-hmm. Um, so the thing about confidence is you, you really do need to cultivate the skills that merit confidence. Mm. Um, now you can do this more easily in some domains than in others. Um, there's some great, um, kind of psychotherapy that's based on like, um, what is it called? Rational emotive therapy. People like Aaron Beck encouraged young men in particular. Okay. If you're afraid of going up and talking to women, um, the way to overcome that fear is basically exposure therapy. You just have to keep doing mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. That does not mean you have to go harass random women in public, but it can mean things like if you're ordering a coffee in a Starbucks, just do a little bit of benign chit chat with the barista, right? If you're ordering food in a restaurant and you're by yourself, just do a little bit more chit chat with the, the server than you would mm-hmm. otherwise. Likewise, you're on an airplane with flight attendants or whatever. Any, any situation where you can just kind of practice interacting with strangers and you get comfortable feeling like there's not this huge barrier to kind of overcome. And like once you realize it's not that big a deal just to make kind of an offhanded friendly comment to, mm. to some woman and like maybe she'll reject you, maybe she'll be mean, mm-hmm. but... It's not the end of the world if that happens. And probably she'll respond more positively than you might expect if you're benign, non-threatening, funny, interesting, and if you're not like invading her space. Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of baptism by fire that I faced as a teenager was, um, you know, most young men in my kind of extended family got involved in this thing called cotillion, which is formal dances guys in high school go to Hmm. and this was back in like the early 80s so we were all you know dressed up like new waivers or punks or or hippies at high school but then you have to wear basically a tuxedo (laughs) as a 15 year old go to a cotillion all the men line up on one side of a big ballroom all the women are wearing their dresses lined up on the other side and you have to walk across the vast empty space in between and go up to a particular woman, invite her to dance. She'd say yes about two-thirds of the time. And then you go back and you dance around in the middle to, you know, uh, the pretenders or Blondie or whatever. Mm. If you do a few of those, um, you know, the idea of like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed to like text someone on a dating app website. That just seems trivial mm-hmm. compared to the kind of massive social embarrassment <laughs> like 50 young men watching you like take that walk and then maybe get rejected and then the kind of walk of shame backwards. 
So I think exposure therapy can be hugely helpful mm-hmm. in terms of like basic social competence. That's interesting. So competence is confidence in a way. Like it's, I mean, I guess you could sort of fake it. You can kind of signal competence or confidence uh, to a limited extent, but it's much more effective and sustainable if you actually have the underlying competence that you're just emanating. Um, I think there's a few kinds of competence that are particularly good at spilling over into general life competence. So like, if you're, let's say, a psychology PhD student and you get really competent at programming, you know, statistical analysis using programming language R, mm-hmm. okay, you can be like confident about teaching a course on statistics through R. Mm-hmm. That will not tend to generalize very well to <laughs> social life and sexual life. On the other hand, if you go, you know, up and, and like do the work and you get your purple belt in jujitsu, that does tend to kind of magically generalize pretty well into kind of her- how you carry yourself and how you interact with other men and women. Um, Is it the so physicality? I think, I think it's that- a physicality. Yeah. And it's knowing um, if like a physical conflict broke out, I could handle myself right pretty well. Yeah. And I think a lot of male fear is is based on this very primal worry that I don't have any actual combat skills. Oh, interesting. And and I think that makes a lot of young men much more shy and deferential and and passive and overly agreeable mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's not that like having mma skills or jiu-jitsu skills should lead you to be like an assertive asshole mm-hmm. but rather it should give you the kind of quiet embodied confidence mm-hmm. where women kind of just can tell oh that that guy can uh he can handle himself like zombie apocalypse comes. Mm-hmm. He could actually be useful. Yeah. Interesting. Look, okay. That sort of leads me to this next point I want to ask about is clearly money and status. These are indicators of position in the human socioeconomic hierarchy. I've seen, it seems like there may be a tendency here, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, some guys overly rely on that. They want to overly rely on status or conspicuous consumption or financial position uh, as as the basis of their confidence in a way, whereas maybe they're ignoring some of these other things, like you're saying, you know, having um, strong physical health or, or what have you. Is that something we do? Is that is it just um, humans kind of a, responding to this current culture of, I, I guess you could somewhat say it's a fiat culture where we have increasing divide between the haves and the have-nots. And then the one thing I want to add to that is because I've seen in certain circumstances like certain outings and with groups of people I've been with professional athletes or people that are very athletic, very physically competent people, let's say, but they can actually get intimidated when a certain guy walks in the room that, you know, maybe 
uh, a legendary poker player or a very wealthy guy, you know, a, a, not, not as physically competent by any means, older guy typically, but very socioeconomically established or even cerebral, cognitively competent, let's say, maybe in a way that they're not. And then the physical guy get intimidated by the non-physical guy. So <laughs> what's going on there? Because that's a little bit different than what we were just talking about. Yeah, we're we're such hyper social primates, and you know we've we've evolved in these tribal groups that had kind of hierarchies of of formidability, which is your ability to fight, dominance, your ability to be assertive and get what you want, status, how much other people respect you, and prestige, how much people value your knowledge and your skills. Mm. Right, all four of those are important, and we have this incredible radar for figuring out kind of how everybody stacks up on all of these. So I could easily imagine, you know, six foot six professional athletes like meeting uh, whatever ninety year old Warren Buffett right. going there and being yeah. kind of intimidated. Yeah, of course, because most of these athletes, a third of them will end up being bankrupt within ten years of retiring because they don't manage their money very well. Um, so there's all these different dimensions of status, and one of the big points in my my book spent. Um, from 2009 was that, again, a lot of young men overinvest in building their kind of financial futures and thinking that that will automatically solve all of their social and sexual problems. Mm. You know, if I just make the right crypto investments or I build my business the right way, then like the, the, the money and the power and the, the women mm -hmm. will follow. And then often they get in a situation where like they're a millionaire on paper, but they have no friends, no girlfriend, have no idea how to find a girlfriend mm. and maybe even feel resentful that like I invested tens of thousands of hours in building my net worth and lo and behold, it, it doesn't automatically cash out into a mm. great <laughs> life. So I think, you know, women are judging income and wealth as one signal among many of your competence and your potential. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's got material implications. It's a hell of a lot easier to get married and have a bunch of babies with a guy if he's got money. And women are extremely pragmatic about this and always mm -hmm. have been. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the huge difference is between being unemployed entirely and having no financial prospects mm -hmm. versus having decent enough prospects that you could eventually get a three-bed, two-bath house that's good enough to raise kids in. Mm -hmm. Like the additional marginal benefit of being a multimillionaire above and beyond that mm. isn't quite as big as you might think. Right, right. You know, there's a lot of guys who are like kind of ordinary Joes with working class incomes, like they're skilled plumbers or electricians, and they have great wives and a bunch of kids and a decent house. Mm -hmm. And why? Because they, you know, focused on like making enough money to have a family, but not over investing to the point that all of their other social skills right. atrophied. That's a great point. So that reminds me of 
the diminishing returns to happiness on income past a certain threshold. I think it used to be 70,000 with all the printing. It's probably more like a hundred thousand or more by now. Um, but that's a great, great point. So there's this balance we need to walk between specialization and generalization. It sounds like you don't want to just overly specialize on money and socioeconomic status to the detriment of everything else, because it's not going to work out really in the mating market. You could be again, super successful in all these other markets, but it won't necessarily carry over back to the most important market, which is uh mating. Looking at the mating market again, we determine that overcompensation on money or status, not a good idea because it's going to come with, I guess, all these, the realization of all these opportunity costs where women tend to want more of a generalist slash renaissance man that's competent in a lot of areas versus someone that's hyper-specialized. Even if that specialization is in something important like, like money or, or status, what about health and fitness? Like, I know, you know, we talked a little bit about the paleo diet and physical activity. Like how do you have general advice for young men in the mating market in the sphere of health and fitness? Yeah, I got pretty involved in the paleo lifestyle movement maybe like eight years ago. And I've been to a number of the, the paleo FX conferences, which are kind of like trade shows for the paleo gurus. They happen well, they used to happen annually in Austin, Texas. Mm. And I think paleo lifestyle, you know, it's not just about like eating a bunch of um, grass-fed free-range beef and avoiding carbs. It goes a lot deeper than that into issues of sleep hygiene and managing your circadian rhythms well. Mm. It goes into what kind of exercise is most effective um, at building uh muscle mass and physical capabilities for young men. It goes into um, a lot about self-education in terms of how do you sort through all the, the conflicting health advice that you're getting from doctors and the CDC and health gurus and, you know, your personal fitness trainer. Like, how do you figure out what actually works and what is mm-hmm. evidence-based? Because for years we got absolutely terrible advice from government agencies like the food pyramid, you know, basically that said mm-hmm. maximize your carb intake, minimize your fat intake. That's completely ludicrous for a, you know, hunting and gathering omnivore mm-hmm. like humans. But, uh, you know, the, the big difference isn't really like, do you have to do exactly the right diet and exercise the big difference is between not caring about it at all and not knowing anything about it versus doing something mm-hmm. anything in some kind of systematic and and sustained way mm-hmm. so you know we like when tucker and i talked about this in the mate book we gave a bunch of specific advice like high intensity interval training is really good it's better to do a few short sprints and rest than to do like endurance running. Mm. Um, sort of long-term cardio work we think is kind of overrated. We emphasize the importance of just lifting heavy and building your muscles in whatever way that takes. My, my personal recommendation is just buy a couple of kettlebells from Amazon, get them shipped to your house. It's kind of funny to watch the, you know, 
the post carriers deliver them I'm like <laughs> and then just learn how to do some basic kettlebell stuff where you can do it literally in in five minutes a day mm-hmm. rather than having to like go to the gym drive to the gym do the gym thing change your clothes drive like yeah. just do something you can do at home body weight exercises you know push-ups planks squats all that stuff you don't have to make it very complicated and so few young men are actually in decent shape at all that if you just spend even like three months doing some of this you'll be in better shape than like 80 or 90 percent of young men Mm. it's this is even more true if you're middle-aged like me like most middle-aged guys are in appalling shape (laughs) and their lean body mass is is like at its lowest point in history and they're they're they just can't do anything and they're aging so fast um so i think women are looking at your body as you know partly it's an aesthetic ornament and they're like Mm -hmm. ah v-shaped torso big shoulders narrow waist good like an olympic swimmer but they're also paying attention to not just what shape your body is in statically but how do you use it how good is your balance are you flexible can mm. you, can you do yard work with it can you help can you lift up your girlfriend mm-hmm. you know could you chase after a toddler who's getting away <laughs> um they're sort of anticipating not just i think they're instinctively evaluating like how is this 25 year old guy going to look in 30 years you know, when we start to have grandkids, is he's is he going to be, you know, decrepit, or is he still going to be vibrant and, mm-hmm. and last, you know, to age ninety rather than just age sixty? Because that's a huge difference mm-hmm. that matters a lot in women's lives. Whether their their husband kind of stays in shape or does the usual kind of hopeless decline. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. The there's a. I think there's a connection too between resistance training and like healthy cognition. I mean, clearly bone density uh, is a big deal, which is also a big deal for women because I know women are more prone to osteoporosis. Um, And I want to say that it was specifically weight training that showed that benefit. So to your point, it's not this endurance cardio that gives you the cognitive benefit. Um, So there's, there's something very special about, putting your body under the stress of weight and resistance training. Um, and I've found it too. I, like I've been involved in fitness and to different capacities. So most of my life, after you do it for a certain amount of time, it becomes indispensable to a good mood. Like if I stop working out for five, seven days straight, I'm just not fun to be around. Like I have to be doing something at least ideally every three days, I need to be doing something physical, some kind of movement just to be enjoyable for others to be around. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's a wonderful thing about the brain that, you know, once you start any, any kind of exercise regime, it becomes kind of Mm -hmm. self-reinforcing. Now there is psychological research showing that kind of, unfortunately there's a there's a big distribution in terms of how intrinsically rewarding exercise is. Mm. Some people 
really love it and they get a runner's high and they feel great during and after workout and they yearn for the next one. Other people, to some degree me, I I don't get runner's high and like Mm. I'll do it. And like I was on swim teams all the way through, you know, high school and stuff, but the training was not wonderful. I just kind of liked the effects of it. Mm. But I do I do also think in terms of athletic skills, here again, a lot of guys over-specialize. Mm-hmm. So they'll think, um, I'll just play football. I'll just do pole vault. I'll just do jujitsu. And then some social event happens and your girlfriend's like, oh, there's a bunch of us playing Frisbee. You want to play Frisbee? I don't know how to throw a Frisbee. Mm-hmm. Or we're going to go on a hike. Do you want to go on a hike? Uh, I'm scared of trails because there's rocks and I could twist my ankle and then I'll play football, whatever. It's, it's super easy to get kind of basic competence in sort of the 10 sports or physical activities you're most likely to do with, with a woman. Mm-hmm. And the more of those you can do, the more fun dates you can go on like you know i used to love taking dates to like golf driving range and just whack golf balls around i'm not mm-hmm. i'm not good at golf don't love golf but driving ranges are fun right and it takes like maybe three hours to be able to hit a ball decently yeah so guys i think all guys should be able to do that you should be able to play volleyball you should be able to run on a beach without falling over you know yeah so it gets back to this issue of general competence. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like those types of dates are very important to balance out the typical dinner and or movie. Like you don't want to just be sitting around on all your dates. You don't, the bonding is not the same, right? It's important to sit down and have a good conversational bonding, but you also need some physical play kind of bonding to really I think substantiate the relationship in a lot of ways. Um, so let's talk about marriage, the institution of marriage. Uh, you, you know, you mentioned the term pronatalism, which is, I guess, just this proclivity to have more kids and um, generate the nuclear family, perhaps, you know, I know that marriage was inc- has been incredibly relevant to humans historically. How much of this was a consequence of our, uh, you know, I guess it started in the agricultural age. I could be totally wrong about this, but I, I think people started having more kids when we settled down and you needed more kids because many hands make light work. And it also created an institution for child rearing frankly. So how much of the institution of marriage was something that's relevant based on our, I guess, existing technological realities, whether we're in the agricultural age or the industrial age. And is it, is it changing now? Like, what, Do you think, do you see the institution of marriage being something relevant forever? Do you think it adapts and changes over time? How do you look at it? The way I think about it is, um, you know, in most mammal species, you've got 
a few males who kind of dominate the mating market and account for the vast majority of all the matings and all the offspring. And then most males are kind of excluded from the mating market entirely because the females are kind of only interested in the top quality, most dominant males. That's kind of a mammalian standard mating system, including for most primates. But humans are kind of different because it looks like about three to four million years ago, we started forming these longer term pair bonds. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily you know, marriage, it's not necessarily sexually exclusive, but it looks like we settled into this pattern of boy meets girl, boy and girl fall in love, they get together, start having sex, start making babies, and then they kind of stick around mm-hmm. together as a social and, and parental unit, at least for a few years and often for, for decades. Now, there might be a time of adolescent experimentation where you're kind of you know, trying to figure out what your mate value is and getting some sexual experience and mm-hmm. having a few different lovers. That's very common in hunter-gatherer cultures. But usually by about age 20, 25, people are starting to form longer-term pair bonds. They're not necessarily, you know, legally recognized or binding. It's not like there's a bunch of civilizational structure around it. They might not have an explicit marriage ceremony. Mm -hmm. It's just other people recognize, oh, they're a couple now. They're living together. They're making babies together. Mm -hmm. And then you get civilization and agriculture and cities and religion, and you get a kind of ritualized pair bond Mm. where there's a specific time and place where everybody gets together and they say, we are going to socially validate you two as a couple. Sometimes with religion, sometimes without, sometimes just cultural tradition, Mm -hmm. sometimes just jumping over a broom and having a a social dance. Mm -hmm. Um, But that, that has a number of important social functions, both for the couple and the community. Once you have a socially recognized pair bond, everybody else can kind of come together to help support it, um, police it, kind of enforce the expectations. Like these two should, you know, try to be relatively sexually faithful to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, these two should both try to support their kids they have together. They should be nice to each other, not beat mm-hmm. each other too much, you know. So you're recruiting family and friends and the bigger community to um, support you and kind of get you through the rough patches. I think that's most of what a marriage ceremony is. It's kind of a bargain between the couple and the community. Mm. The couple says, we're going to do our best to have a good relationship and last a while and maybe have kids. And the community kind of says, thumbs up. We support you guys. We're going to be here for you. We're going to be kind of a safety net. We're going to help support the moral norms and expectations that help you have a good relationship. And I think that is all still completely relevant. You know, you don't necessarily need, uh, you don't even necessarily need a legal framework Mm -hmm. for that. The marriage ritual itself can work even if you're not legally married. Right. And religion can help because religion a lot of it is specifically designed to support and validate these pair bonds and 
you know, families. Mm. But you can have a total atheist um, wedding and it still works as a commitment mm-hmm. signal. So I think marriage is still very relevant. And, you know, my wife and I just got married like uh, it's almost two years ago and we spent a lot of time you know, writing our wedding vows, which are actually online, they're open source, it's mm. super easy to find them. And we thought about what are we going to vow to each other and how is that going to work? And why do we want to spend money on a big wedding? And we realized it's, it's to get the, the, the buy-in from our family and friends mm. you know, so that, that the whole system works. It's marriage is not just between the two people. It's the public validation of that relationship in the eyes of everybody else. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's almost like a social institution. We're wrapping around this biological predilection for long-term pair bonding in a way we've just kind of ritualized it. Um, yeah, because bear in mind, lots of other primates like gibbons form long-term pair bonds. Often, last the whole life right. of the, the gibbon pair, and they have they have no ritual, no wedding rings, no, yeah. no divorce court, you know. And yet, they they form pair bonds because that's the most efficient way in their habitat to maximize number of babies. Gotcha. Interesting. So, so it does come down to that maximizing. <laughs> reproduction right whether it's i guess for certain forms of primates that uh, long-term pair bonding is the dominant strategy for that but other species of anything actually not just primates any other animal they have different strategies for maximizing that which is dependent on their environment right like i'm thinking of the frog that just has a quadrillion tadpoles and maybe 1% 1% survive sort of thing. Um, I don't think they're long-term pair bonders, but I might be wrong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the real experts on social monogamy and pair bonding are the birds, you know, there's like right, right. Whatever, 10,000 species of birds and the vast majority of them form these pair bonds and raise the nestlings together. Yeah. And it has a lot to do with, you know, it really helps to have two birds um, who can protect the nest and defend it and alternate the foraging. So one goes out right. to the food while the other protects the babies and then they swap off. And yeah. if you just had a solo female and kind of the local alpha male swoops in once in a while to impregnate them, yeah, those females are not going to do as well as the ones who, you know, find a decent male to stick around. That's it. So maybe it's the relationship to long-term planning or, or I guess, operating over a broader scope of space or time that sort of contributes to this pair bonding. Cause that's what helps humans too, right? As we're dealing with a long stretch of time, it really helps to have someone to kind of compliment you where you're weak and vice versa. Yeah. That's and you really get a division of labor also yeah. you know, with, with human, typically the males do more hunting and warfare and defense and the females do more uh, gathering and childcare and, yeah. um, I think that's that's got pretty deep roots. Right, right, right. You know, even if in a modern marriage you have a different division of labor, I think during romance and courtship, it's still super helpful to understand 
that our kind of default expectations are. Yeah. If you're a man, you should be good at hunting and fighting and, um, you know, dealing with dominance hierarchies at, at some level, at mm-hmm. least kind of metaphorically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So what about this? This is something I think about. There's, it the, seems to be this deeply embedded tension between the masculine impulse and the feminine impulse. I mean, men clearly we produce a lot of semen and we produce it all the way until we die. Women have a very costly um, version of reproduction. You know, they have a limited number of eggs. They go through nine month pregnancy. That seems to be to me, at least related to men have this impulse to want to spread their seed far and wide, be non-monogamous, especially when you're younger, I think, and your hormones are high, that's much more likely to be where your head's at. Whereas women have this impulse to try and kind of lock, you know, security. They want to lock in the long-term pair bond, nesting, you know, creating the home, the space for, for reproduction, whatnot. Is that just, I mean, as a man, you feel almost torn because like, okay, this idea of long-term pair bonding, you get all these advantages of marriage. It seems like it's almost part of growing up in a way, but you always have this underlying uh, primitive impulse, if it's primitive, I guess. So you just want to have as many partners as possible. Is that just something that's, are those different regions of our brains conflicting with one another? Yeah, I mean, in, inside everybody, there's always this um, tension between different sexual strategies that you can follow. Mm. My friend David Buss, B-U-S-S, one of the leading evolutionary psychologists, has been writing about this for 30 years, different sexual strategies. Some can involve focusing your mating effort on one particular person, getting into a committed pair bond, locking them down, you know, maybe staying faithful for the next 50 years. Mm-hmm. Another sexual strategy might be um, you know, maximize number of mates and number of seductions if you're a young man and um, try to spread your genes more widely. And evolution has given most men the capacity to do either mm-hmm. you know, or both at different mm-hmm. stages, depending on the circumstances, depending on the mating market, depending on women's preferences, depending on your own mate value. Right. You know? And, um, depending maybe on the status of civilization, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. I was just thinking that kind of like Genghis Khan was, a, you know, had, had a ton of kids in a more brutal age versus today. That seems like that wouldn't be possible just given the level of civility we've reached. Yeah. In a way, one of the, the most astounding facts, you know, about modern civilization from a kind of Darwinian point of view is that so few billionaires have harems. Mm. Any other point in history, powerful, dominant, rich men will amass the biggest harems they can get. Mm. Uh, There's a Darwinian historian, Laura Betzig at University of Michigan, who's written whole books about this. Ancient China, the ancient Aztecs, ancient Rome, um, ancient Mesopotamia, India, every single civilization you know, the top males try to kind of monopolize as many young, fertile females as they can. Hmm. 
And that leaves a lot of other males with no mates mm-hmm. because of how the numbers work. Um, somebody like Bill Gates or Elon Musk or you know, even Warren, Warren Buffett could easily have huge harems. Why don't they? Um, because there'd be social outrage and they'd be lynched. Mm. It's basically, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost nothing more than like the civilizational norms that you should not cash out your wealth into reproductive success hmm. because that is somehow unseemly. But it's only been that way, honestly, for about two centuries. Yeah. Fascinating. What do you know? What is that? What causes that change? Just we develop higher moral social morality because we're we've been around longer something like that well the the kind of cynical view is getting back to the game theory of this mm-hmm. imagine two different civilizations in one civilization it's kind of like you've got the alpha male despot and harem system and then a whole bunch of young men who are dispossessed don't think they'll ever be able to get a mate right and don't really have any stake in the success of their civilization right mm. they might be better off running away somewhere else mm. they certainly might not be willing to fight for the despot mm-hmm. what's the upside to them right you know you risk death but you'll never get a mate anyway so why bother on the other hand once you have institutionalized like normative monogamy where you specifically um, encourage young men to get married, but you also discourage the wealthiest, most powerful men from having multiple mm-hmm. wives. Right? Once you equalize the distribution of mates, suddenly all the young men have civilizational buy-in. They care mm. about the success of their culture. Hmm. They want to band together. They're willing to fight. They're willing to trade peacefully. They're willing to build their careers. Mm-hmm. You can like harness all their their mating effort, hopefully, into the the greater good. Mm. So what you see playing out in history again and again is when the despotic civilizations with polygyny, you know, one man, multiple women, polygynous civilization versus monogamous civilization, the monogamous civilization will usually win Mm. because it's easier to call on the enthusiasm of the young men if they think right i could actually get a wife right this i think you you see this like again and again for the last several thousand years that's really fascinating it calls to mind kind of like the tension between centralization and decentralization if mate you know monogamy reigns as the cultural norm you're going to be able to harness a lot more of these you know again the most powerful energies in the world which is our our impulsion to reproduce if you can now channel all that into a hierarchy where each member of the hierarchy kind of has some up upside that seems to be a more decentralized and therefore more sustainable or competitive hierarchy versus the super centralized one where the guy at the top has all the girls and all the other guys are you know, either slaves or mad or trying to, to defect in some form. It just seems like that. It makes sense that that hierarchy would lose to a more monogamous hierarchy. Never thought of that before. That's super cool. Um, what about cheating cheater detection here? So like, 
again, if I'm looking at it through that lens, it's very obvious why a woman would be would want to detect if her partner's cheating because that would jeopardize the stability of you know the man that defends and bring you know presumably he's bringing home the food or the money or whatever maybe he's the hunter slash defender I guess category um and then the man similarly I guess are men and women the same when it comes to cheater detection like are they similarly concerned do they have the same methods um we're both pretty good at it um my friend David Boss has a whole book on on jealousy and cheating called The Dangerous Passion from about mm. 20 years ago. Highly recommend it. Long story short, men tend to be more um, sexually jealous in the sense of tracking, if, if this is my woman, is she actually having penile vaginal intercourse with somebody else? That could result in her getting pregnant and then mm. me becoming unwitting stepdad, thinking mm-hmm. I'm dad. Right? Mm-hmm. raising mm-hmm. some other guy's kid and being uh, cuckolded or you know being cheated on. Mm-hmm. So for a man, the big risk of sexual infidelity is a woman gets pregnant with another guy's baby and then you end up investing it in it and you have zero reproductive success yourself. Mm-hmm. Women tend to be more focused on emotional jealousy, but really it's resource jealousy. It's, mm-hmm. Is my guy spending a bunch of time, energy, money, and care on some other woman mm. or even career or friends or something. Mm-hmm. And is that a threat to his support of me? Interesting. Right. If he's out there, you know, um, catting around and having kids, but he never supports any of them, never sees those women again, if they're not a threat to your marriage, right? Um, women might not care that much about about strictly sexual infidelity mm-hmm. a lot of points in history wives have been like yeah he visits you know a sex worker once a month it costs a little bit of money he gets some variety who cares right a lot of french wives are like yeah he's got a mistress as long as he doesn't spend more than whatever 15 percent of his net <laughs> income on the mistress's apartment it's no big deal um but if he was threatening to leave you for the mistress, yeah, that's the that's the threat. So I think a lot of this is is about protecting our our long term uh, reproductive interests and uh, resource interests. Also, that's really fast. So they both are founded on resource strategies. Then, because the man doesn't want to expend resources raising a kid that's not his, the woman doesn't want another woman or any distraction for that matter, um, taking away from resources that would be channeled to her. Yeah. That's interesting. So it's, it's the intersection of like the sexual reproduction domain and the material support domain. Yeah. You know, that can lead to a lot of potential conflict. This is one area. So understanding these dynamics, understanding all this is really important because a lot of couples are ex- like really surprised at what their partner gets jealous about. Right. And, and once you understand what the actual stakes are and what the psychology of this is, um, it means, number one, you can avoid pointless jealous arguments if you want to avoid them. But number two, you can kind of like 
um, harness the jealousy benignly to kind of supercharge your 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 romance mm. and, and kind of remind yourself, oh yeah, she's still hot. Other men want her. Mm. That's okay. And for women in particular, if their boyfriend or husband isn't desired by anybody else, right? I think that can be a huge turnoff, also. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, low market value. Right. Something like that. That's really interesting. Um, this may be one of those areas, actually, I'd never thought about it before, but I have this I, sort of a theory that it's actually, how do I put this? The It's almost like human behavior or human character is in large part, I don't want to say exclusively, but in large part, it's an emergent property of the incentive schema we inhabit, right? So we're, we are, the incentives we face are almost percolating up through our behavior, but it seemed in some ways, like w- the way you just unmasked that, like there's resources underneath it. Like we wouldn't typically think, oh, that guy is jealous of his girl because he's thinking about economic resources, but there is some underlying embedded incentive to be that way. Um, so this may be one. This is maybe one good example of it to point towards that dynamic, where I think incentives are kind of like the soil from which our behavior springs out of a lot of ways. And that's why when we look at socioeconomic systems, it's almost pointless to be like, "Oh, remove Trump and put in Biden, or remove Biden and put in the next guy." Like it doesn't matter because you're you're literally just taking one human, which is the emergent property of their incentive structure. And putting another human in the same incentive structure, like it's the outcome is never going to change. You have to evaluate and repair these things at a systemic level. Otherwise, you're just going to have the same outcome repeatedly. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point. And you know, the way that evolutionary psychologists think about instincts is basically um, prehistoric incentives got compiled into instincts as sort of like computational heuristics. So whatever the incentives were to do a certain kind of social, sexual, or parental behavior mm-hmm. 50,000, 500,000 years ago, the instincts, the emotions, the preferences that we have are the kind of distillation of those past incentives. Mm. But of course, we're also responsive to current incentives and we we track these very you know very carefully like what works what doesn't work what will lead to success or failure mm-hmm. and um yeah you're right in the political domain if you don't change the um incentive structures for what it takes to get elected and funded then you know given the gerrymandering systems and the two-party systems that we have you're not going to really change how leadership works and I think like Trump and sort of understood this, like his phrase drain the swamp was basically like a recognition that we need to change the incentive structures in, in mm-hmm. Washington. But of course, it's really, really hard to do that, particularly if you don't have a, like a broad base of support. So. Yeah. And the very basis of it, I would argue, is so long as you have a central bank and a fiat currency, the rest of it's ruined. I mean, there's no way you're ever going to clean up Washington 
so long as they can print money, right? Because that's the ultimate distortion of incentives. The ultimate, you can literally just rob everyone for as long as they will bear it, as long as the market economy will bear the cost without some type of social breakdown, you know, social upheaval. Um, yeah, it, it's so interesting that if you start to look at the world that way through the lens, again, we're back to game theory, kind of all the way down or the incentives all the way down, um, really calls into question the way we've put ourselves together uh, under this banner of democracy, which I just don't think it works long-term. And it's funny, I think a lot of the same kind of game theory and economic and political issues about incentives also apply within marriages and within even the most intimate right. relationships because like my wife's working on a book um, about how uh, couples kind of train each other using like reinforcement learning methods. Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to reward you for this or punish you for that. Right. And we often don't really understand how that works and we often do it very badly. So we end up kind of implicitly rewarding partners for behaviors we don't actually want in the right. long run and punishing uh, behaviors that we do actually want. Simple example, um, a lot of girlfriends and wives kind of unwittingly train their boyfriends and husbands to lie to them huh. in the sense that if a woman's like, hey, honey, um, seems like there's this topic you've kind of been avoiding and like, I'd really love you to, you know, say what's really on your mind about it. And then he like takes the bait and he discloses something like radically honest. A clever female trainer would be like, that's awesome. I'm really glad you shared that. I'm not going to say anything negative about it until tomorrow, until I sleep on it. Mm. They're just going to be completely rewarding of the honesty itself. But instead, what a lot of women will do is like immediately jump down his throat and like, right. how dare you? I can't believe you thought that or you wanted that or you fantasized about that. That's terrible. Yeah. What the male brain gets is I'm never fucking going to do that again. Yeah, exactly. Disclose anything. I'm yeah. going to keep a, a great firewall between my, my inner life and, and what I tell my, my female partner. That's a simple example, but that's and great advice. Pay attention to like what incentive structures are you creating in your relationship? Yeah, that's great advice. Um, I mean, yeah, I've only been on the guy side of that dynamic, but where you kind of go out on a limb and divulge something you might not normally in the interest of deepening the relationship, perhaps like you're really trying to, here's something I don't normally talk about, but you asked, so here it is. And then if the woman responds negatively, yeah, your immediate response is like, okay, no more of that super personal, truthful conversation. We'll just keep that one in the box. That's yeah. <laughs> that's funny and interesting. And um, you know, when when you meet people, you, what you're really meeting is like the ghosts of the, the the training that they've experienced from their previous exes. You know, and so what looks like it might be just, well, that's their personality. I guess it's never going to change. Actually, with six months of better incentives, it might actually change quite quickly and, and radically. Interesting. So there might be hidden hidden gems available. 
That's funny. So back to that dating being in, I think you called it an obstacle course of virtue, something to that effect. It's like we can consciously tweak that course for one another and help. You can't create behavior clearly, but you could help guide desirable behaviors um, or at least increase the likelihood that they would emerge by changing the incentives. That's, that's brilliant. Um, so we're talking about marriage. Like, how do you see the future of marriage as an institution? Is it going to be reshaped by our new technological realities or incentives? Um, and maybe this is where we could start to talk about polyamory as well. I mean, that seems to be an alternative to marriage, maybe even alternative form of marriage. I think some people, I guess this would be polygamy again, people taking multiple wives or maybe even multiple husbands. I'm not sure. Um, do you see that as a, something that would become more common over time? And that, what do you think about all of that? I think it's fascinating that we're in a, we're in a phase of um, kind of radical experimentation at least among people under about like age 35, like millennials and Gen Z, a lot of them are into various kinds of alternative relationships. Like, um, you know, this just increases across the board in like people identifying as bisexual, people identifying as polyamorous, being into open relationships and so forth. Um, and I've taught uh, a number of times a course on alternative relationships, which looks at all the research on these different kind of relationships, but not just the kind of like open relationships that kind of traditionalists would consider sinful and degenerate and unsustainable. Mm -hmm. But we also cover things like um, Mormon marriage and traditional Catholic marriage mm. because statistically they're also kind of alternatives to sort of standard American bourgeois marriage mm. because they they wrap up a lot of religious depth and tradition and, and pronatalism and family values with marriage in a way mm. that kind of mainstream America doesn't as much. So we cover the whole spectrum. And I think um, we're kind of figuring out, okay, which which of those is actually going to be sustainable and successful and viable, you know, psychologically, financially, reproductively. Mm -hmm. I think we don't know, but I think the better that we understand the pros and cons of traditional marriage, the better we can um, have a kind of mental map of like what's likely to work and what isn't. Mm -hmm. What ways could we kind of tweak these you know, legal systems or social norms or moral mm -hmm. expectations to work better. And I do worry that we're going to be blindsided by a bunch of new technologies that are going to make uh, traditional marriage really difficult for mm -hmm. just as one simple example. A lot of women take a view of pornography that if my man watches porn, that's like really bad, it's addictive, it's a betrayal of me, it's a sign that I'm not enough for him, he doesn't really love me, 
Mm-hmm. It's toxic to the relationship, blah, blah, blah. Um, <clears throat> but the vast majority of young men have plenty of experience with porn by the time they're like getting married. Mm-hmm. Um, and often it's like kind of an important but unacknowledged part of their life. Now, as you know, the technology of, of simulated sex gets better and better with virtual reality, with deep fakes, with augmented reality, mm-hmm. with face recognition, with, with social media, all of that, you know, we're going to reach a point in 10 or 15 years where any given husband or boyfriend could potentially have like a fully immersive virtual reality experience where it's like, you know, my ex-girlfriend's face on Scarlett Johansson's body and whatever they want. And there's going to be a negotiation, you know, about what counts as cheating. Yeah. Okay. So on the one extreme, the guys who are into FinDom, financial domination, where they're like, they, they fetishize sending thousands of dollars to some online escort who knew they never even meet. <laughs> I imagine most wives would be not very happy with that, right? Yeah. Because that's a direct zero-sum resource problem. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if a guy is spending like an hour a week in you know, virtual reality pornotopia with some you know, abstract or animated figure and it like costs nothing it doesn't really impact the relationship a lot of women might might decide well that's not cheating that's just that's not any morally different from him like playing a video game Mm. or having a night out with his friends or just watching the 77th avengers movie or whatever Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but i think we're gonna have to recalibrate what what our expectations are about marriage going forward. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Let me ask you another technology question that I've thought about, which may influence marriage, but certainly divorce. (laughs) The idea of Bitcoin, frankly, that you can now keep your resources in something that the court system can do nothing about. Um, And I've seen, you know, marriages or let's say divorces get very bitter over the kids and the money. Typically, like those are the two main pain points. If a man, and let's just say this is the stereotypical marriage where the man is the breadwinner and the woman is the child rearer in the event of divorce. Now, if this man is custodying all of his Bitcoin properly in a way that, you know, court can't get access to it, does this now give men an, uh, a new upper hand in divorce negotiations or all of a sudden, you know, women, I don't know, they lose leverage in these negotiations or perhaps even focus more on the children as their mechanism of leverage. Like it sounds, it just, it's not fun to think about, but I have, it's just registered in my mind. Like, huh, what, what are the implications of unconfiscatable money? You know, there's a, there's many, many to think about, but this is one. I'd be curious to hear your input on it. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, I've seen some written about issues of um, 
crypto and inheritance and wills and how do you make sure that if you die, your, your private keys don't die with you and your, right. your heirs can actually get your money. And I think that's really important for everybody who's invested in Bitcoin or any kind of crypto to think mm. about. But I think also, you know, should your, should your wedding vows include anything about sharing your private keys? Mm. Yeah. But to what extent are you going to mingle your assets? Like having a joint bank account is one thing. Having having a joint, you know, crypto wallet might become just as important or like just as big as a symbol of commitment as, right. as the joint bank account traditionally was. And there's this whole legal superstructure wrapped around marital finances that's kind of geared towards how do you, how do you achieve a fair split in cases mm -hmm. of divorce. But that tends to focus on, you know, bank accounts, real estate, um, joint investments, wills. It, mm -hmm. Crypto's kind of a blank space in there. Mm -hmm. And it's like any of your listeners who are seriously into, into Bitcoin or any kind of crypto, like this is worth thinking about when you, you find a girlfriend or you're thinking about getting married, how are you going to handle the kind of crypto finances? Yeah. And then there's a bunch of broader issues about the, the traditional American marriage expected that if you're middle class, the vast majority of your net wealth will be in the form of your, your family house, your real estate. Mm -hmm. But in the era of remote work and leases and Airbnb and the fact that you know, crypto provides so far hugely better ROI than real estate, mm -hmm. people might have to update their expectations about like what counts as financial stability for a family. Right. You have to own your own home in the suburbs or is it just enough to, you know, earn from your staked crypto enough to cover your Airbnb and monthly rental fees? Is that financial stability? Right. I don't know. Yeah. I, it seems to me like, again, this, you know, Bitcoin is so empowering to the individual that it might become more normalized again for just everyone to have their own individual Bitcoin holdings. And that maybe in marriage, uh, women start to demand, you know, if they make that traditional arrangement, the man's the breadwinner, the woman is staying home to rear the children. Instead of having to, you know, enter into this asymmetric relationship and you get divorced 10 years later and you have to now go and seek 50% of the assets, maybe they just demand a percentage of the income in their own personal Bitcoin wallet throughout the marriage. That way, if you ever separate, it's like, it's all good. You know, she has some, he has some, there's not, there's less to fight over. This is really bad for divorce attorneys, by the way, <laughs> which are, I think the highest earning cohort of attorneys, divorce attorneys, of course. Um, so that, yeah, it's just fascinating how technology is going to change our dating and or marriage habits. Yeah. I mean, if I was a young woman getting, getting married to some guy, I, I would make damn sure I had, I had invested a bunch of my income over the last few years into, you know, Bitcoin or some other kind of, um, stable appreciating, um, non-inflationary currency and I would keep my nest egg 
you know, maybe totally separate from the family finances. Yeah. Because typically men are more impulsive and less conscientious about spending. Right. Yeah. And then I'd, I'd be confident, like I've, I've got my three Bitcoin and maybe if we get divorced in 15 years, I'll be fine. Yeah. Right. And I think, um, it might even be in, in the interest of the men who are, you know, dating women to kind of encourage that, like to make sure yeah. each person has their own crypto holdings as as the fallback. Yeah. Um, as long as you hodl it and, um, you know, keep it safe. <laughs> so I often describe, the simple description I give for Bitcoin is as an insurance policy on central banking, typically. Like the more dollars they print, the more valuable the policy becomes. That's the very simple answer. Now, if you want to go deeper, there's hundreds of hours we could spend talking about it. But it's funny that it seems like Bitcoin might also be an insurance policy in this way too. You could have it as an insurance policy on your marriage. You just yeah. hold a little there in case things get dicey and you have to separate. Um, you know, you and you don't have to fight over it. You just you hold it and you can take it wherever. And all the advantages of, of Bitcoin come into play. Um, so it's an insurance policy against, I mean, if you're worried about saving up for your, your kid's college fund. Right. I, I pity the people who are like, I'm just going to invest in like an index tracking mutual fund. Right. Save for like, that's not the worst thing you could do. But yeah. if your time horizon is that you've got like five-year-old kids and they're going to co- go to college in 12 or 15 years, why would you not invest in Bitcoin or, or crypto? Yeah. For that purpose. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great, great point too. Bitcoin is ensuring us in many ways. Um, so going back to polyamory, do you see this as having an impact on the nuclear family or social cohesion more generally? Because I think Traditionally, at least in the U.S., the nuclear family has kind of been the cornerstone of the American way of life in a lot of ways. Uh, it started to decline. Do you think polyamory and nuclear families sort of adapt to one another? Um, and maybe you could just speak to some general advice for, you know, dating advice for people that maybe or interested to learn more about it. Cause I think most people hear about it, whether you're into that or not, you still want to learn more. It's something it's like, Oh, what is this new form of, of relationship? So maybe any advice you have to be great. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a bunch of different subcultures out there that have different views of kind of what the ideal relationship looks like. I think a lot of those subcultures are idiotic and delusional and have ideas <laughs> about relationships that won't actually work and aren't sustainable, mm. particularly if you're um, you know, financially connected to someone and you're raising kids together. Mm. You really need security and stability and clear expectations. So I think you know, polyamory is kind of typically a thing that kind of younger people do often before they have kids, but not necessarily. And when they're kind of still in the mating market and they love multiple people, they have multiple sexual partners. Um, 
but they want to be upfront and honest about it. Right? They don't want to hide the fact that, oh, I'm being this other person also. They want everybody they're involved with to know about everything they're doing mm-hmm. in a kind of radically honest way. And I think at least in a narrow sense of being honest, that's ethically good and, and mm-hmm. laudable. Much more common, I think, throughout the lifespan is some degree of open relationship where you have a pair bond, it is stable, you have a primary partner, Mm-hmm. But then you can negotiate around the edges kind of what degree of sexual exclusivity is expected and required. Mm. Now, most actual marriages already are a little bit open in certain ways. Mm-hmm. For example, you know, your wife goes off to work and like, she has some colleague or boss or whatever who she has a slightly flirtatious relationship with. Mm-hmm. And she gets a little buzz out of that. And like, that's okay because you're confident. Like they're kind of enjoying the flirtation, but they're never actually going to have sex or they're going to have sex, but she's not going to leave you. Mm-hmm. Right? Or you're kind of okay with your girlfriend having a crush on whatever Ryan Gosling or whatever movie mm-hmm. star she's into. And you don't feel like that's a betrayal. Right? Or a lot of wives are like, I don't care if he watches porn as long as he doesn't have an affair. Mm-hmm. So it's always a negotiation. It's just where do you draw the line of exactly what degree of sexual exclusivity is expected? Hmm. Now, most marriages will never explicitly negotiate this. So people get surprised and then they feel betrayed. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I thought if I went on a business trip to this conference that you thought it would be okay if i had a little affair just for the weekend right right and then the other person's like i never meant that (laughs) so i think negotiating this stuff up front very clearly that's one takeaway that you can get from the kind of open and poly subcultures try to be explicit about this so people aren't disappointed and surprised um i think a second takeaway is that Um, you can actually share quite a lot more about your inner sexual fantasies and your desires and your sexual past if you have an open-minded partner than you might think. Mm. Like A lot of people have the assumption that, oh, if if I get together with a new girlfriend, I have to forget all previous girlfriends, pretend they meant nothing, Mm. not stay in touch with them, derogate them, um, act like my current girlfriend is the best, you know, ever in every possible way. Mm. And I also can't share anything about, you know, attraction to anybody else right. with her. Um, now, I happen to have the, the good fortune that, like, my wife is, is out as bisexual and she's into women also. So if, if we're walking down the street, she'll usually notice an attractive woman before I will and be like, check her out and then I'll check her out. And like, yeah. So that's a thing we can bond over. Yeah. And I feel really lucky that um, I have that because it's sort of a mutually positive thing rather than a threat to her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. But it's just another example of where I, I wish people felt more empowered to kind of explicitly kind of 
raise these issues and negotiate mm-hmm. with them and, and kind of decide together how are we going to do this rather than just make a bunch of assumptions about what you think the other person can handle and they're assuming, you know, what they think you can handle. And you never actually discuss it until you've been married for 20 years and finally you have to go to couples therapy right before you get divorced. And then, right. oh, you were into that kind of kink? I was into that too. Sure, <laughs> I discovered that earlier. Right. Yeah, that's an excellent point that it's... <sighs> Maybe historically we were conditioned, and again, I'm just speaking through a lens of a kid that grew up, you know, I was born in the mid 80s, so I kind of grew up towards the end of the 20th century in the US. It seems like my parents' generation and prior, they were much more traditional. They didn't want to talk about a lot of these things. They were very taboo, but by not talking about them, right, these are very universal ubiquitous darwinian aspects to being a human right you have you have kinks for certain things or you may have attractions to this or that we're always going to be attracted to other people i don't even think a man and a woman like we can engage in dialogue but there's always some degree of sexual energy it's not like it's not something that's bad right it's not like oh there was sexual energy there or not there's always and it's not just sexual it's almost creative energy in a way that is between and it's between people not just men and women you know men have a certain amount of masculine and feminine and, and women vice versa by bottling all that up and be like i'm just never going to talk about that you know look away ignore my wife is perfect whatever again kind of a false story you're telling yourself you're setting yourself up for some disaster at some point it seems like because that what you're bottling up is real and if you're not looking at it, you're not, if you can't talk about it openly with your partner and be like, here are these things that are maybe weird or strange, but I want to talk about them. And without them having some over, you know, like we talked about the woman earlier, if the man shares something deeply held and personal and she attacks him, he's like, put that back in the box and let's not talk about it. If you don't have that openness, it seems like maybe that contributes to a lot of these disasters we've seen in more traditional relationships. Yeah, and it takes enormous courage to to open these these topics up for discussion because but I, I'm convinced part of it is just screenwriting. I think movies and, and TV get so much mileage out of fabricated conflict within couples. Mm. You look at a screen and all you see is fabricated conflict and couples who, who are just terrible at actually sharing their feelings and then accepting the other person's feelings and moving on. So we have so few role models. You know, our parents didn't tend to do this stuff very well, at least not in front of us that we could see. Mm -hmm. Um, Fictional characters don't do it. Our friends don't tend to talk about it very much. Like, I can't remember that many male friends being like, well, I had this really weird, like, sexual problem where I was into this kink and my wife wasn't, and here's how we talked through it. Like, Mm -hmm. that's not something guys talk about with each other very much. Mm And I think there's a lot of guys who consider themselves dominant and confident and alpha chads and like they can handle anything. And then you're like, okay, what three embarrassing sexual desires have you actually shared with your girlfriend (laughs) ever? And usually the answer is none. Yeah. So it, it takes enormous, um, 
courage and trust in the other person. But I think you, you can do a kind of gradual escalation of this where it can be as simple as like asking your girlfriend or wife, hey, what three male movie actors do you think are the hottest and why? Right. Tell me about them. Um, and then you'll be all threatened at first because there'll be guys who are handsomer and richer than you. But yeah. deal with that and move on. That's a great point. So is that is that the right approach then? Is you need to have we need to be assertive in these conversations almost? Like, hey, let's really talk about what you're attracted to, right? To really get to the bottom of someone's uh I guess perception on of the mating market so that you can talk about these things openly. Cause otherwise you know, they are very hesitant to bring them up for obvious reasons. You probably don't want to hear about them because of your ego. So it's like both of you have this incentive, unspoken incentive, maybe to keep it in the box, so to speak, but that's what's poisonous to relationship. So does one of the partners then just need to be very uh, proactive and engaging in this type of dialogue? Yeah, you have to pick your set and your setting and your timing and like, mm. don't raise it in the middle of an argument about something (laughs) like like wait till you've had like a really happy weekend or after a hike or you've like you're relaxing and you've each had a couple beers or whatever your your favorite substance is and where you're a little less inhibited than normal and then you can have a, a slightly more honest conversation and um and treat it as a a playful game and a kind of practice and be like, yeah. hey, I, I love you so much. I would love for us to have like more actual intimacy and honesty. Yeah. Think about that. Most women will be like, ah, I've been waiting for this. Yay. Mm. And then as long as you get their, their buy-in where they're saying, yeah, I, I want more realism about what we want. Yeah. And then just don't, dump it all at once just right raise like maybe one thing that you've kind of been withholding or keeping secret or you felt ashamed about um or it can even be something where like both of you know that the vast majority of men have a certain preference Mm -hmm. right and where it's not actually individuating where you're just basically speaking up like as a male of the human species, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I kind of like this thing. Yeah. And then she can come back and go, that's so weird. Why? Do I? <laughs> right. Because, Cause it's not weird. <laughs> she, knows, she knows every, every ex-boyfriend is probably the same as you. You yeah. just are the one who had the guts to say it. Yeah. Do you, okay. That's, that's, do you recommend people enshrine this in a contract of some kind? Cause what you were describing earlier, like, there's an under, maybe, I don't know if it's a spoken or unspoken understanding that the wife goes to work and she does, she has the flirtatious relationship. Perhaps she sleeps with them. Like do all of those boundaries need to be spelled out in writing so that you, if you and your partner have a dispute, she's like, Oh, I thought I could sleep with a guy when you were gone. And, and you're like, in clause two AC, we said no sleep, whatever. Is that how specific you recommend taking this or? Some people, some people do that. I mean, some kind of hardcore 
polyamory activists might actually draw up a contract, kind of like in Fifty Shades of Grey, where mm-hmm. you know, Anastasia had to like read this thing and negotiate it, and it's all like on paper, and there's like a non-disclosure agreement, blah blah. I don't think you have to do it that way, but I think you can kind of give um, examples of like, here's the kind of thing I would actually be surprisingly comfortable with you doing mm. versus here's a thing that like is an actual deal breaker, but you might not realize how distressed I would be by it. Mm. And I think it, it can, it's kind of a long-term process and you're always discovering more and often you're renegotiating because mm-hmm. um, like my experience in open relationships is you often need like a lot of explicit verbal structure and very explicit agreements at first as kind of train wheels. Mm-hmm. And then once you get more trust in the other person, you can kind of take the, the training wheels off a little bit mm, more as okay. you get to understand them. But I, I do think you get huge benefits from being even just a little more clear and explicit than most couples are. Right. Right. That makes sense. So early on having a very well-defined container for the relationship and the expectations of extra relationship interactions, but over time you just kind of sync up with the person. Yeah. And then, so in, in polyamory, you see people doing this, I guess, each direction. It's like this partner with that partner, this partner with that partner. Yeah, and, you know, the negotiations can become quite complicated in those situations. <laughs> you might have a primary partner who you're, you know, in love with and who's, like, three times more important than anybody else. But then you might have a couple of secondary partners who you see kind of regularly and are also important and maybe long-term lovers. But each negotiation with each of them also implicitly involves everybody else because they kind of have to agree to some degree about what your negotiation with the other person is. Mm. So it becomes a very complicated kind of end player game Mm. and often a difficult um, ongoing negotiation. Um, This is one reason I, I kind of tend to prefer the open relationship model where you're like, this is my primary partner. They're the most important. They're indispensable. Everything right. gets negotiated around them. Oh, okay. Respect for people on, on the outside who are like secondary partners. Oh, okay. So is, is that the path that it develops along? Sometimes you just have primary partner one and two, and then they add people or as they go kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, most people I know who do open relationships are, you know, often they're in primary pair bond, often married, often with kids, but then they often they also have other people they see on the side periodically. Mm. Like might be living in a different city. You visit them once in a while. It might be a mm. business colleague. You get together with them at conferences. Maybe it's somebody you only see once a year at Burning Man or whatever. Mm. <laughs> um, and those can be significant relationships in their own right. And, and valuable. Um, but I do think it's, it's important to structure all of this in a way that's consistent with, 
you know, a viable career and a home and being able to raise kids. Right. If you want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of minimal, minimal risk, minimal stress, um, and, and kind of maximum commitment. <laughs> Sounds like quite the balancing act. Um, I know, I know how complex it is with just one partner. So I can only imagine, <laughs> I'm sure it's non-linearly more complex, the more partners you add to the equation. So Jeff, this is, I mean, very interesting stuff. Um, I'm just fascinated with these relational dynamics and it, this really seems to be the core of so many other things we're doing in the world. Like, you know, I'm typically talking about broader markets, socioeconomic systems and all that, but this is so much of that behavior, you know, consumption, investment, whatever is really centered on this, this primary market of human beings, which, or of life itself really is just reproduction. So um, thank you so much. I mean, it's been really fascinating. Uh, do you want to leave the audience with any parting words or maybe tell them where they can find you, find out more about your work? Yeah. Um, since we've talked mostly about uh, dating relationship advice for young single guys, I do recommend my book Mate from 2015 with Tucker Max. Um, I still think like 95% of it is still valid and relevant. If you want to understand better why you don't need to overinvest in your career and money, to get a mate, my book Spent from 2009, mm -hmm. I think is pretty good. And then my, my website, um, primalpoly.com, has a bunch of resources, every academic paper I've published, a lot of interviews, um, a lot of material, suggested reading lists of other, you know, books by other people who I think are, are worth looking at. So um, those are all good. The mate book, the spent book, primalpoly.com. Awesome. Jeff, thank you so much. I'll put links to all the books and your Twitter handle in the show notes for the audience. This has been awesome. I, you know, would love to have you back on sometime. Feel like we could talk forever about these topics. So thank you again. Take care, Robert. Thanks. See you.